Dr. Lustig on the Huberman podcast. So this was a podcast that I wish I never would have watched or listened to. A lot of people tag me in and they're like, what do you think of what Dr. Lustig is saying? So first of all, I'm not an expert on and most of the things he talked about. Um, obviously, I am and consider myself an expert in cholesterol uh, and nutrition and many of the topics that he did touch on. I do want to say that people far smarter than myself have listened to that interview, tore it apart, offered evidence and rebuttals, and I don't have anything to add to that. One of the best ones I've watched so far is Lane Norton. If you guys know, Dr. Lane Norton is a scientist who has a PhD in nutritional sciences and muscle protein synthesis, and he is an expert on uh, you know, nutrition, obviously. He is also the author of Fat Loss Forever, which is one of the top one or two books that I usually recommend when people want to learn about weight loss. Um, I recommend Flexible Dining by Alan Aragon and then Fat Loss Forever uh, by Dr. Lane Norton. So Dr. Lane did a really good job of taking apart Lustig's stuff, especially the nutrition stuff, the his obsession with fructose and the low-carb insulin model, blah, 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 like all that stuff. What I want to address is his takes on cholesterol. So it seems like he's stuck somewhere back in the 1990s uh, cholesterol thinking. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, we were wondering if whether or not the oxidative status of LDL particles mattered or not. Now, the problem with that is that it's difficult to uh, measure it correctly and standardize the assays, but it was done. Labs, you know, doctors wanted to order this. There was some research that showed it might be promising. So, of course, labs are not going to be like, well, we're never going to offer this because it's nonsense. They're going to be like, hey, you guys want to pay for it? We'll be more than happy to give you this test. So they did. They made this test available. Now, I will say, and this is a long chapter in my cholesterol book, and the cholesterol book should be coming out soon. Um, pretty much done with the uh, textbook, just waiting on a couple of forwards. Actually, you guys want to know something cool. One of the forwards I'm waiting on is from Dr. Lane Norton himself. Um, so hopefully he'll uh, send that in soon. He's working on it. Um, uh, pretty excited about that one. So I've got like a long list and litany of people in the cardiovascular world, uh, fitness world, nutrition world, all evidence-based people who are fantastic people to follow that I highly recommend uh, you guys follow. They're all writing forwards or little you know snippets for the book. But anyways, back to Dr. Lustig. He goes on to claim that the size of the LDL particles matters and he uses nonsense words that seem to cater to the low-carb world, the keto carnivore type people. Seems like he's read way too many blogs. I mean, literally, he's just repeating what he reads on these low-carb blogs. He calls the LDL particles large and fluffy, which is nonsense. No one in the medical community, and he is a medical doctor, so it's kind of sad, but literally no one in the medical community calls LDL particles large and fluffy. Um, they may be less dense and more buoyant in a centrifuge, However, they are not large and fluffy or whatever this nonsense is. They may be smaller, they could be more dense, you know, like HDL particles, but they're absolutely not large, fluffy, buoyant, whatever they call these things. Um, and the data has been pretty clear over the years. It, you know, then over the next 5, 10, 15 years, the data has come back and 
the size of the LDL particle does not matter. And I've done tons of articles on this. There's actually a whole blog uh, on my blog. If you go to drallo.net slash blog, just search for size matters. It's an entire article talking about LDL particle size. So LDL particle size does not matter. Now, that does not mean the size does not matter in other instances or other departments. Um, but, and I'm joking, right? But definitely when it comes to LDL particles, uh, size does not matter. They are all equally atherogenic. This has been shown time and time again. So one of the things that I go over in my new cholesterol book, and if you want I took a, a notification on when that's coming out, just go to drallo.net slash cholesterol drallo.net slash cholesterol. You'll be the first to know. We are getting super, super close. It's almost 500 pages. It's 106,000 words right now. Beautiful, gorgeous diagrams. Um, you guys are going to love this book. But the there's a whole chapter on LDL particle size, and we go over all the data. Look, all LDL particles are somewhere between 18 and 24, maybe 25 nanometers in size. Um, they all cross the endothelium without question. Anything under 70 crosses the endothelium without problems. And these are 22. You know, they're, they run about 22, 23. So they all can cross the endothelial matrix or the endothelial cell layer pretty easily. They don't need any help. They don't need anything other than a pressure gradient. And since there's bazillions of them in your bloodstream, the pressure gradient can be very, very high, and they just cross right over, and they get retained. We've talked about retention multiple times. There's a whole chapter in my new cholesterol book on retention. Why are LDL particles retained? You know, what's going on? Why does our body seem to like to keep them in there? So the retention is obviously a major issue. They get retained, and that is where all the problems start. They begin to aggregate. They get you know, activated by reactive oxygen species. And, you know, that's actually where oxidation happens. Once they're in the cell wall, they get triggered or activated by reactive oxygen species. That's when they become, uh, they start to aggregate and they get sticky and then the immune system tries to attack them and all that. So definitely it is not in circulation. Your body quickly eliminates anything oxidized in circulation. If you have one single particle that is oxidized instantaneously, it is taken out of circulation. So there is no evidence that the, to the contrary, you know, and people say, well, what about that one study? I did a whole podcast on that one study. Go back and watch that one or read it or actually listen to it. Um, it's called that one study. Yes, there are lots of studies from the past that showed that Small LDL particles mattered, or oxidized LDL particles mattered, or bigger LDL particles mattered, or statins reduced this, statins reduced that. None of that uh, turned out to be the case. The other thing that he goes on to talk about is a topic that he, which is also about cholesterol, but this is a topic that he knows nothing about. He goes on to say, well, you know, the average age of, you know, the average lifespan added to your life if you take a statin medication or lower your LDL cholesterol is four days. So first of all, I've debunked that a million times. There's literally a podcast that I did called Statins Only Add Four Days to Your Life? Question mark. That is based on terrible data, and it was based on short-term studies. You put somebody on a statin for a year, yeah, you might add four days. And even the authors themselves said, no, that's not true. The conclusion, the authors themselves in the discussion said, no, they probably add more like three or four months if you just take the statin for one year. So if you took a statin for one year of your life, and then stop taking it and change nothing at all. And that was the only variable. Yeah, you might add four days and up to maybe 120 days. I think they said 125 specifically days to your life. Now, that's not 
what we do with statins. When somebody takes a statin, we don't put them on it for a year and then stop and say, okay, go back to your LDL of 120 or 130. No, you take it and you stay on it forever. The area under the curve continues to expand. And then you end up with adding years, if not decades, to your life. And it doesn't matter how much time you're actually adding, even though it is decades, we are adding quality of life, health span, no strokes, no amputations, no peripheral disease, no disease in the intestinal arteries, no disease in your coronary arteries, all of that improves. So while, you know, these people are like, well, you know, taking a statin for just three months does this. Well, no one takes it for just three months. So that is just nonsense. Why is he saying, and why does he keep bringing this up again? This is the Asim Maholtra, and unfortunately, he's a cardiologist, this Dr. Asim Maholtra, trying to sell anti-statin books. This guy tries to sell books that are anti-everything because you're not going to sell a book saying, hey, people, cholesterol isn't bad. The other thing that Lustig said that was completely erroneous is that people age 60 to 75 or maybe 95, something like that, do not benefit from lipid lowering. I have an entire chapter in my book on statins and the elderly. Every single study ever been done, other than this one nonsense meta-analysis that Malcolm Kendrick, Asim Maholtra, and Ufe Raznikov published themselves, and we'll get to that, but every single study ever been done on people over age 60 benefited, over age 50 benefited, even if they started the statin at that age, 65, 75, 70, 80, 90, people at every age benefited when they were started on a statin compared to those who, do, who didn't start the statin. Now, obviously, the older you are, the less benefit. If you're 90 and you start a statin, you get maybe a 20% reduction in adverse cardiac events. If you were 75, it might be 32. If you were 55, it might be, you know, 70%, whatever. You know, I have a whole chapter of that in my book going through every single study, every single research article that's ever been published on those. Now, there was this article slash meta-analysis that was published by this group of clowns that wanted to sell books saying that lowering LDL cholesterol made no difference, especially in the elderly. So this was published by Ufe Raznikov. They did a meta-analysis to publish a book called The Cholesterol Myth, and they picked only uh, studies of this. So this was uh, completely debunked by the British uh, Medical Foundation, Then I have a link to that in my book as well. I've also done videos on it. Search my videos on the Cholesterol Myth book or something to that effect. Um, but five of the authors were selling a book that is contrarian, uh, five of the nine authors, which obviously is conflict of interest, not 11 of the 19 studies they selected did not even have mortal mortality data. So I'm not sure how they can show that mortality was different when you don't even have mortality data. And most of the, uh, studies they selected were only in English. They excluded a lot of studies the authors themselves said, yeah, whoops, sorry, you know, we should have searched all the databases instead of just PubMed. There was the Cochrane, the NHANES, other databases and other, you know, uh, languages. They didn't search all the databases. They only searched the one that they wanted and self-selected studies that kind of showed their results, but really didn't. And then they came up with this conclusion that's like, yeah, if you're over 60, stands might not be a good idea, which is absolutely false. Literally every study that's ever been done that is inclusive actually showed tremendous benefit. The other thing that he says, well, an another study that was done showed that um, people with the highest LDLs live the longest and people with the lowest LDLs or, or something like that, I don't remember. You know, it's a U-shaped curve. The lowest LDLs die the most and the highest LDLs die the most or live the longest or something like that. Something is completely opposite of what we know. We know based on literally every study that's ever been done, when you take all of the studies um, people with the lowest LDL cholesterol 
live the longest event free. You know, no no heart attacks, no strokes, no non-fatal heart attacks, no fatal heart attacks, no strokes, no peripheral heart disease, no amputations, less vascular dementia or no vascular dementia, depending on how low the LDL gets. And you add decades to your life, if not more. Now, the average age of men in this country at the turn of the century was nine, was uh, 35 at, at the year 1900. And every age group, whether they started at birth, uh, up to five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old, whatever, every single age group has increased, doubled or tripled their lifespan. So there's that. They say, well, no, you're not counting infant mortality. Kids died because of infant mortality. That throws off the age. No, it doesn't. They accounted for all that. But anyways, back to our you know conversation here. LDL cholesterol, they're saying, well, the higher it is, if it's around 140 or more, people live longer. That is absolutely not true. If you correct for the confounders and covariates correctly, which a new study that I published, um, there's a whole chapter in my cholesterol book on this. This is just shows you like I'm basically, my cholesterol book is debunking all these nonsense, right? All these people that seem credible, seem to be doctors, seem to be cardiologists, seem to be statisticians, epidemiologists, whatever. They all seem like they're super smart and they have these wonderful degrees, but they're lying to you. So this book is designed to debunk a lot of that and arm you with the evidence you need to say, listen, people, this is not true. Here's the study. So there was this one study published in Circulation, I believe, or the Journal of the American Medical Association, Heart you know, Journal, whatever. Um, they said, listen, people, we get that you're looking at the Swedish cohorts and the Australians and the Koreans and the Japanese and the what have you, Copenhagen. I don't know. There's a few of these cohorts that were published that said that people with a higher LDL lived longer or people with really low LDLs actually died more, right? So they said, well, look, you have to correct for cancer, severe cancer, severe COPD, severe mal malnourishment. Those people died and had very, very low LDLs because they had end-stage disease, extremely malnourished, haven't eaten in months, lost 20, 30% of their body weight, maybe more, some of them 50%. And they're dying anyways of end-stage cancer, COPD, emphysema, malnourishment, protein, calorie, malnutrition, whatever. It's not the LDL that caused the death. They died and their LDL just happened to be low because of the disease process that is underlying. That's what actually happened. But these people don't want to look at it that way. The other group of people that supposedly lived longest... Um, but had higher LDLs, that's selection bias. Most of those studies didn't even start checking LDL till they were over 65. If you made it to 65 or 75, whatever it was, I have that study in there too. There's a whole chapter on that one. But if you made it to 75 or 70, whatever it was, there's survivorship bias or healthy user bias or whatever you want to call it. In that case, a lot of these variables may not matter. Your LDL may be higher or lower, but it's not the issue. All the people that died at a young age from high LDL have already been eliminated. You know, they've already died. So that's the survivorship bias in play. And a lot of it is reverse causality. You're not dying because your LDL is low. You're dying because you have severe end-stage cancer. You're not living longer because your LDL is high. Your LDL is higher because you're living longer. Um, so a lot of these things get confounded. Now, there was this article published, I think this is what I'm trying to get to in circulation, they said, if we took all of these studies, the Korean, the veterans, you know, whatever it was, and we corrected for the covariates correctly and put in a two-year lag time to eliminate reverse causality. They said, if you don't use a two-year lag time, you're not eliminating reverse causality. They took model one, model two, model three, added in the uh, lag time to eliminate reverse causality. Absolutely, they found without question, the lower the LDL, the longer you lived. 
the higher the LDL, the shorter your lifespan, without question. Like it was not even close, wasn't even funny. It wasn't even uh, an issue. So there was no debate there. Uh, that was it. So Lustig seems to be stuck in never reading an article, never reading a publication, never reading data, and he caters to the lowest common denominator of these low-carb carnivore bloggers that are just not smart enough to know the difference. And, and if you are one of these people, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying you just don't know, and neither does he, and he's a freaking doctor. But he just doesn't know. He believes in this insulin carbohydrate model of obesity, which is a bunch of nonsense. Literally every study that's ever been done, if you consume less calories, you lose weight. All these new medications that are causing miracles, causing people to lose weight, guess how they work? Uh, you eat a lot less. You eat like 30% uh, of what you used to eat in some cases. So, and not only that, but they actually increase your insulin. So his model makes no sense. If you increase insulin, you're supposed to get fatter, right? Um, so this has been obviously disproven in multiple, multiple ways. But the point being is he caters to a crowd that probably doesn't read scientific articles and doesn't know how to, doesn't understand or can't possibly interpret them similar to him because he's a freaking doctor who supposedly is smart, but he can't even understand uh, these things, which is really sad, obviously. Um, but unfortunately, this is who he is. And it's sad because he's got a big platform. And I don't know, I'm assuming he does. But he's got a platform and people listen to him and people will tag him and things and say, well, this is not what Dr. Lustig says. Well, who is Dr. Lustig? He literally has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to nutrition, weight gain, weight loss, whatever it might be. He has no idea. He's not a subject matter expert. He has no idea. I'm not going to comment on everything else when it comes to the nutrition, the cancer stuff. He said he contradicted himself like 18 different times, not even in the first half hour. Um, when it comes to nutrition and cancer research and all that. So I'm not even going to go there. It's not my, you know, I don't want to hit that. I want to hit the cholesterol stuff and the LDL particles and all that. So without question, this guy has no clue what he's talking about. The more LDL particles you have, the more atherosclerosis you have. There's just no question. Larger particles carry more cholesterol. Smaller particles carry less cholesterol. And then he starts going on, well, it's the carbohydrates and it's the insulin and these triglyceride lipid, these triglyceride rich particles and blah, blah, blah. To a certain extent, that may be true. When you are insulin resistant or have diabetes, you have slightly more triglycerides in your particles and their clearance time does go down slightly. But at the end of the day, all of the information and all of the data we have on that is that it's irrelevant. There is no target to treat LDL, or I'm sorry, triglycerides. We don't say you absolutely have to lower your triglycerides because triglycerides in and of themselves are not atherogenic if they're not associated with high levels of LDL cholesterol. That's low-density lipoprotein. If you have the high-density lipoprotein, that's when you have the problems. LDL particle counts matter the most. Of all of these things, if you get one thing out of this talk, the single most important thing is that LDL particle counts matter more than anything else, more even than the LDL cholesterol itself. The LDL cholesterol is what's inside of the lipoproteins. The LDL particles are the total number of LDL particles. If you're a little bit confused about this, uh, my cholesterol book should be coming out soon, which explains all this. But more importantly, right now, what you can do is go back to my lipids and lipoproteins podcast and listen to that one just so you get some basic information on what all this means, what's a lipid, what's a lipoprotein, how to think of this 
what does it mean with there's cholesterol inside of it and there's particles and what do these mean? What is ApoB? All that stuff. You'll understand it. But Huberman, come on, man. I did a whole thing on Huberman, you know, and his takes on cholesterol. His takes have been horrific in the past. Um, this is another one. He probably should not have interviewed Lustig. Literally nothing Lustig said in this interview is accurate. Now, um, Huberman did self-correct. He did bring on Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia, to come back and correct him on cholesterol. So I like that about him, that he is open and willing to self-correct. You know, I if I'm ever wrong on anything, I'll be more than happy to self-correct. And I'm sure I'm wrong on a lot of things. I'm not, you know, saying this in a boastful way. I'm wrong on a lot of things. Don't get me wrong. But I correct myself. I self-correct. Same thing with Huberman. I have seen him self-correct. He probably should issue a statement, I would think, saying, look, guys, you know, I realize that uh, a lot of what was said on this podcast may or may not be true, and I didn't fact check it, or I shouldn't have brought this guy on, or I should have put, you know, links to studies, or whatever it is, just say something, man, because people are listening to this, and they're just like, oh, you know, well, if Huberman brought him on, then he's got to be right, and unfortunately, Huberman is one of these podcasts that just likes to bring on guests. I did an entire podcast on why I don't like I don't listen to podcasts where they just bring on guests because first of all, I don't know if the guests are reliable. Like imagine if I was a Huberman fan and I listen to Huberman one, one time he brings on Peter Atia, which is fantastic. I agree with him. But then, so then I become like, okay, I'm a Huberman fan now. What he says and does and the guests he brings on are good. And then he brings on this lustig guy that contradicts everything Peter Atia said about cholesterol. To me, that just doesn't make any sense. That is not Good. You don't want to lull your fans or readership or followership into believing everything you put out there and then present them with false information. I don't think that's ethical. I don't think that was his intention. I do think he has self-corrected in the past, which is good. But I also think you need to have a little more responsibility. You should not bring people on that you know give out wrong information. Unless Huberman just doesn't know, you know, that's a different story. If he doesn't know that this guy is terrible, you know, that's a completely different uh, story and definitely a possibility. Anyways, that's all for today. If you guys want to join my community, we meet and talk about this stuff every Monday evening. Uh, Go to drallo.net slash community and you can join me and my friends. We talk about this stuff all day and all night. You can text me every day. I'm on call for you and I hope to see you in the next episode. Peace.